Good morning. Um, last week, uh, we said goodbye to uh, Philip, um, the evangelist, uh, and, and what is going to happen now in the book of Acts is we are now moving the lens away from Philip and, and are going to begin to see the lens zoom in uh, on this man, Saul of Tarsus, uh, and just for... Um, for the sake of everyone following along, I'm probably going to call him Paul more than Saul, even though that's what the text says, because that's how we all know him. So uh, please forgive me for bouncing back and forth between uh, the two names. So we're going to see the book of Acts that we've been traveling through as a church begin to zoom its lens in on this man, uh, Saul. Now, we have met him before. Uh, we met him in Acts chapter 7 when they were stoning Stephen after he preached Jesus uh, and, and to get a better arm to to throw, they began to take off their outer garments and they laid them at the feet of this man, Saul. Then we met him again in the beginning of Acts chapter 8, where it said that he was entering house after house and dragging men and women off to be imprisoned uh, for being believers. This man, Saul, hated Christ, he hated Christianity, and he wanted this movement crushed. He wanted what he believed this heretical movement to be no more, and he was willing to do whatever it took to see these Christians and the name of Christ go away forever. Now, that begs a very, very interesting question. Why? I mean, why does this guy hate Christianity so much? Why does he hate Christ so much? Why is he so just cold-hearted and, and, and just chasing after these people to see them crushed and destroyed? I mean, where is the live and let live attitude? I mean, why not just let them go do whatever it is that they do, and then, you know, he can just stay true to the true Jewish faith and just let them do whatever it is that they're going to do? You see, it's hard for us in our kind of Western liberal thinking to really grasp this type of attitude and this type of hatred towards another religion and towards another people. So in order for us to kind of understand the motivation behind this man, let's take just a quick look at his history. Uh, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. His parents were Jewish and had named him after the first king of Israel, King Saul. So that's where he gets his name. Now, from the Bible, we know that Saul was um, a very tall, very handsome, and a very muscular guy, but people end up calling Saul of Tarsus, well, they end up calling him. They end up calling him Paul, which means what? You guys know? Small. <laughs> so his namesake, tall, muscular, good looking. Um, but we know from church history that Paul is a very short guy. Um, he is, in many accounts in early church history, uh, he's described as bald and having a unibrow. So, uh, nevertheless, uh, what we know about the Apostle Paul is um, that he was incredibly well-educated. Um, the, the, the place that he comes from, Tarsus, is incredibly well-known for having great schools. So he was raised up um, being very well-educated. He spoke Greek, he spoke Aramaic, and at home and in synagogue, he would have spoken Hebrew. We know that he probably knew some Latin and was probably fluent in that as well. So he's incredibly smart, incredibly well-educated, and after receiving 
receiving this great education uh, at Tarsus, he's then sent off to Jerusalem to study underneath one of the world's best rabbis named Gamaliel. If you remember, we met him a few chapters back as well. So he studies under this man, which lets us know that he comes from wealth or he comes from money to receive this level of education. Uh, he comes from a family that is in good position and is wealthy. Uh, just listen to what he has to say about himself from Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. This is what Paul has to say about himself. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, meaning from birth I have obeyed all of the rules to the letter. That's what he means when he says that. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, meaning these guys took the Old Testament and made rules about the rules about the rules. And, and what Saul is saying here is, I followed them all. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. His entire life had been devoted to this religion, had been devoted to this nationality. Um, he... he um, loved his religion and he loved his country, Jerusalem, which was the center, the very center of that religion. At his heart and the very core of who he was, he was a religious nationalist and was willing to kill anyone who threatened this way of life and what he believed to be true. So why does he hate Christians? Why is he so adamant about killing them? Because it stood in direct opposition of everything that he believed and his whole life's trajectory. You see, what Saul believed was God saves good Jewish people. That's what Saul believed. And Christianity was preaching God saves anyone who calls on the name of Christ. Now, he knew, Saul knew that better than a lot of us, and that's what made him hate it so much. Saul's saying, no, 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 God does not save everyone who calls in the name of Jesus. God saves good Jewish people who obey the rules. Saul is much like the Islamic terrorists that we know today, and this is not an overstatement. Saul is essentially the Abu al-Baghdadi of his day, the leader of the ISIS or IS, the Islamic State, which is persecuting um, people who do not believe what they believe in Syria and in Iraq today. This is the type of person Paul is, hunting people down, killing them because they stand in opposition to what he stands for. Now, the good news is this. Today we're gonna see a great story um, of this guy who is just totally against Christ, totally persecuting everything that Christ stands for and his people. God shows up and saves him, and, and he becomes the apostle Paul, the, the apostle to the Gentiles. He goes from preaching against Christ to preaching for Christ. He goes to preaching um, th this idea of gender equality and race equality, which has influenced much of our world today. You see, things like the suffrage movement, women's rights, civil rights, all of that looks back to and leans upon this man 
the Apostle Paul. Now, whether or not our country was founded as a Christian religion is up to debate, but even our founding fathers look back to and lean on this man, Paul's ideas and his writings and what he had to say. So whether we know it or not, every person sitting in this room has been influenced by this man, Paul. And dare I say, he is the most influential man next to Christ. I would say that about Paul. He is the most influential man in the whole world next to Christ. So we're going to look at his conversion today. So let me just talk about my goal and and where I want to go uh, today in in our talk. Here's what I want to do. I want us to get a glimpse of the figure in the blinding bright light. I, I want us to see just a glimpse of it, right? So I'm using glimpse Intentionally here, if we, if we see what he saw, we might also fall down and be blind. So I, I, just, I, I want us just to get a glimpse of the, the figure in this light. And then what I want to do is I think if, if we just see a glimpse of the figure in the light that we will be drawn into two things, worship and devotion. Okay, so, so if we could just see it, if, if I can just faithfully unpack what's happening here in the text, I think we'll get a glimpse of it, and then our hearts will go, I want to worship this man, Jesus. I, I want to devote my life to this man, Jesus. Um, so that, that will be a work of the Holy Spirit. So, so my goal, unpack the text, uh, and, and allow the Holy Spirit to draw our hearts into a place and time of worship, saying, Jesus is awesome. He's incredible. Look what he's done here, and he's done it for us, and he's still doing it and working today. And then for us to leave out of here today going, I want to devote my life to Christ. My whole life, I, I, I want to devote it to Christ. So um, that, that's a large goal, uh, but we serve an even bigger God. Um, verses one through four. But Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them down to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Luke begins by saying that he was breathing, breathing murders and threats. What Luke is talking about here is that he was so consumed with persecuting the church that it was literally the air that he breathed. He breathed it in and he breathed it out. Hatred towards this movement, hatred towards these people. Um, so what he does is he goes to the high priest we know is Caiaphas. He goes to Caiaphas and, and essentially asks for letters. What, what does that mean? Well, um, he couldn't rightfully, uh, because he didn't really have the position or the authority, just to go anywhere and walk into any synagogue and just start arresting people. But if he had official letters from the high priest saying that he could, then he could. So he goes and asks Caiaphas, hey, uh, I would like some letters uh, because I want to go and persecute the way. And again, how does Caiaphas feel about Jesus and this whole movement? Okay, he hates it, right? He, he does not like it. And, and you can imagine Caiaphas's response being, I'll give you as many letters as you can carry. Okay, so he, he gets these letters and he goes on uh, to persecute, very interesting what it's called here, the way. What does Jesus say? 
I am the way and the truth. So very early on, Christianity was not called Christianity. It was actually called the way. That's what it was called until later on people began to um, use Christian as a derogatory term, which means little Christ. Um, they, they begin to just accuse people of being, oh, you're just trying to be like a little Jesus. And early Christians said, yeah, we kind of are. We'll take that name. And, that, and so, but early on it was called the way. It then tells us that he was seeking men and women. It said this exact same thing at the beginning of chapter eight. Now, what is Luke doing? Well, he's emphasizing the brutality and ruthlessness of Paul. You see, he wasn't just jailing, beating, and killing men. He was also doing this to women. You can imagine the scene where Saul would have kicked in the door to a suspected Christian home and, and tearing babies away from their mothers as he would drag these women off to prison and would encourage the authorities that be to kill these women. This is a man who has hatred and evil in the depths of his heart and his soul. So there he is on the way to Damascus. This was about a 150-mile journey. Uh, it would have taken him close to a week. Again, it wasn't enough for the Apostle Paul just to, just to see um, the people in Jerusalem uh, who were Christians be scattered out. He wanted to hunt them down like dogs and kill them. So he is willing to travel an entire week to get to Damascus to find if there are any Christians there so that he can kill them. But along the way, on this 150-mile journey, I love the way that the text uh, says it in verse 3. It says, and suddenly, and suddenly, out of nowhere, out of the blue, he is surrounded. It, it says, light shone. A so I want you to get this picture in your mind, okay? Now, while there is not a horse in the text or an animal in the text, we, we can assume that uh, by, again, his position, the fact that he is wealthy, and, and the length of the journey. We can assume he is on some type of animal, and there he is riding, and all of a sudden, he is surrounded. It said the light shone around around him, meaning he cannot go forward, he cannot go backwards. God has arrested him and stopped him in his tracks. God showed up suddenly in a bright light. Now, this, this, this idea of light would not have been lost on the Apostle Paul. If you can remember, he talked about his adherence to the Pharisaical law, so meaning he would have known the Old Testament you know, forward and backwards. He knows the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, how do we see God often represented as, as a bright light? This would not have been lost on Paul as he is riding and all of a sudden light shows up. He cannot go forward. He cannot go back. He is trapped in this bright, bright, shining light. And it says, and falling to the ground, the light was so intense, the force, the presence was so intense that it knocked him off his horse, it knocked him off of that animal, and he could not go anywhere. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. It is an amazing blessing of God when by the inward operations of his grace or the outward occurrences of his providences, he prevents us from executing sinful purposes. 
It is an amazing grace of God when he shows up and when we are intent on doing evil, when we are intent on going down a path that is in opposition to God and to what the word of God says, it is a great grace when he shows up and stops us in our tracks. Looking around this room, I know many of your stories and you know many of mine. I shudder to think what would happen in my life or where I would be today if time after time after time God hadn't shown up and stopped me from doing the evil that I wanted to do. I I don't know where I would be today if, if time and time again God hadn't whether just an inward conviction of saying, ah, I shouldn't do that, I know it's wrong, or whether just an outward providence of just someone coming in or God sending something or doing something, and it just stopped me in my tracks of carrying out the evil things that I wanted to do. This is the first glimpse of the man that we see in the bright light who loves us so much that he is willing to stop us even when we're trying to hurt ourselves. He loves us that much to say, no, this is gonna hurt you if you do this and I love you too much and I'm going to stop you from doing this because I love you. And so here, because of the love that he had set on this man, Saul, he stops him in his tracks and Saul does make it to Damascus, but he doesn't persecute any Christians there. And that was a great grace, a great grace of God. Surrounded by light, knocked to the ground, he cannot go forward, he cannot go backwards. In Saul's mind, obviously, this is a supernatural experience and something supernatural is happening. And here is what the voice says to him. Saul, Saul, again, this irony would not have been lost on Paul. What does God say when he shows up to Moses? Moses, Moses. It it happens all throughout the Old Testament, this repeating uh, of, of the name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, at this moment, you have to imagine Saul, he, he, he's understanding that God has shown up here. There's a big bright light. Light means God's here. The repeating of the name, Saul, Saul, something of the divine. I'm experiencing something of God here today. This is amazing. What is he going to say to me? Saul, Saul, you're the man. Thank you so much for all that you're doing to crush this heretical rebellion. I love you. That's not what the voice says, but that's what Saul thought the voice would say. Although he knew the text forward and backwards in his mind, he had distorted the truth. Even though the text is pointing to Christ, pointing to Christ, pointing to Christ, he refused to believe that. So there he is believing this lie, and God interrupts and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's what the voice says. If you're a note taker, you can jot this down. Number one, I have five of these type of observations today. Number one, Jesus identifies himself with his people. Jesus identifies himself with His people. You see, Jesus' persecution was over, right? 
I mean, he had already come and done everything that he had needed to do in his earthly ministry and had received the ultimate persecution by death on the cross. And now he's ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father, uh, just waiting for the church to kind of carry out his bidding, right? So Saul here is persecuting the church, not Jesus, right? Wrong. Here's what Jesus is saying to Saul. When you harm the body, you harm the head. He's saying, when you mess with my kids, you mess with me. Just, just as us, as, as if, if you're here today and, and, and you're a, a mother or, or a father, you, you feel that way about your child. If, if you see another kid come over and push your kid over, there's something that's like, I'm going to punch that kid. I, like, there's something inside like, I know it's wrong. I shouldn't kick this kid, but he just kicked my kid. And if you mess with that kid, you mess with me. And, and there, there's this urge in you as a parent that, man, if, if you mess with my kid, you are messing with me. And so that's exactly what Jesus is saying to this man. He is just knocked on the ground. You haven't just been messing with my children, Saul, but you have been messing with me because I, Christ, identify with my kids in this way. And it is simply amazing to know that the God of the universe feels this way about us. If you mess with them, you mess with me. The, the truth of the matter is I often feel like Jesus says, I will identify myself with you when you perform well. When you perform well and when you do good, when you're inviting people to church and when you're reading my, my, the, the words that I wrote here, then I will identify myself with you. And that's not the fact at all. The fact of the matter is, is that when he calls us, when he saves us, we're his children and this is the way he views us. It doesn't matter whether my daughter has been behaving well that day or not. When someone hurts her or harms her, I, I get involved. And God does as well. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, As you have done to the least of these, you have also done to me. I want to tell you, believer, I want to tell you, Christian, you're not alone. You're not alone. He, he is very near to you. And the fact that Jesus identifies himself with you means this. I am free to be insulted and not strike back. I am free, listen, because Jesus identifies with me and on the last day, everything will be vindicated. Here's what that means. I am free to not have the last word. I don't have to get vengeance against people when they wrong me. When someone slanders me, I don't have to have the last word. Why? Because when I am wronged, Jesus gets involved. And he, he, as the good, loving God of heaven, will vindicate everything on the last day. Now, that doesn't mean that as Christians we're pushovers or allow people to walk all over us, but, but there's a difference between standing your ground and going after and getting vengeance in your name. The Bible says that God says vengeance is mine. So the fact that God is near, the fact that Jesus identifies himself with us means that I don't have to have the last word. Jesus is gonna have to have, he's gonna get the last word. 
It means that I, I don't have to strike back when, when, when someone insults me or when someone comes after me. I am free to say, you know what? Jesus on the last day is going to make all of this right, which is great and great and amazingly comforting. In addition, all of us need to know this. God never lets his kids down, ever, ever. He may not show up in the way that we want him to show up, but he always shows up. Some of us have painful childhood memories of fathers or mothers who were absent and not there, and so often we can translate that back onto God. God is the God who shows up for his children, and we see that here in this text. So God has shown up. He has knocked Saul off of his animal, and he has asked him a question. He has asked him a question that demands a response. Why are you persecuting me? This is a forceful question. There Saul is, trapped by the light of God. He cannot go forward. He cannot go backwards. So this is the question Jesus asked him. Why are you persecuting me? And it's very interesting. Let's look at his response in verses 5 through 8. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Then those who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. He had been knocked off his animal, totally blinded, and he gets asked this question, and here is how he responds. You can imagine he is a little bit confused. He was expecting the great bright light to say, thank you so much for all your hard work and your effort. Instead, he has no idea who he is dealing with. And the voice says, I am Jesus. And again, this just might be my active imagination. As soon as those words left the mouth of Jesus, I can imagine in the heart of the apostle Paul, him uttering the immortal words of Homer Simpson. Don't! He is saying, I am the resurrected Christ, the king of the universe. I am the one who has ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all. That is who you are persecuting, Paul. And he says, no. He had missed it. He had totally, totally missed it. Now, here he is blinded. It says that his eyes get opened up. Okay, now, again, if you can just use your imagination a little bit, I imagine this great shining light, this booming voice coming, and Paul is not just closing his eyes because of the bright light, but he's also closing his eyes in fear. As he's just, stand, just waiting, now that he knows it's Jesus, he's clenching his eyes tight, just waiting to be obliterated for all that, that he has done. So he opens up his eyes, and he cannot see, and as we know from the text, he can't see for three days. Why, oh why, does Jesus blind him for three days? Just to get back at him? No, again, this guy knew his Bible forwards and backwards, and the irony of this would not have been lost on him. Listen to this from Isaiah 59, 10 through 13, and, and, and I want you to see if you can see what I see here. Okay, now, here's another fun fact before we read this. Um, in Acts chapter 26, 
uh, what Paul does is he recounts this story again, and he lets us know that this happened during midday. Okay, it doesn't say it here, but when Paul recounts it again, he lets us know this happened. He got blinded during midday. Listen to this from Isaiah 59, verses 10 through 13. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is no hope for salvation. But it is far from us, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppressions and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. You can imagine at that moment as he opens up his eyes and he can't see anything, this verse come flooding back into Paul's mind. He's, he, he's realizing that God has blinded me to show that I'm spiritually blind. God has blinded me to show that I'm spiritually dead. This is what God is doing. God has blinded me to show that I've really been denying the one true God who is Jesus. Here's what I want you to see from the text. Number two, if you're taking notes. Jesus chose Paul. Paul did not choose Jesus. He was not seeking Jesus. He was not looking for Jesus. He did not come down front. He did not sign a card. He did not pray a prayer and ask Jesus into his heart. Jesus Christ showed up and in an arresting light stopped the apostle Paul in his tracks and throughout this scene saves him. He saves him. In this moment, as Paul is in rebellion and running towards the fires of hell, full force against God, full force against Christ, Jesus shows up and says, before the foundations of the world, I have set my love upon you, Paul, and you are mine, and I am bringing you into my family because I love you. That is the God we serve. That is the God in the light that all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we see that we had hearts of rebellion against God, not wanting anything to do with him, pushing him away, saying, I know how to live my life, and I want to live by my rules and do my own thing. And we know that if we're saved, that what happens is God intervenes, interrupts, steps into our lives and says, I will not allow you to hurt yourself. You're my child, and I'm bringing you into my family through my sovereign will. That is the God who stands in that light. Jesus had also said something very similar to this to his disciples. The same thing he's saying here to Saul, he has also said to his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 16. Here's what he says. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. What's so amazing about what we see in this text is that the hunter becomes the hunted. <laughs> 
as Paul is seeking to hunt down Christians, the God of heaven says, no, you're not the hunter, you're the hunted, and I'm coming after you, Paul, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to save you, even though you stand in direct opposition to me. Here is what, at this church, we believe the Bible teaches, and it's going to come up on the screen if you want to write this down. We hold that regeneration precedes conversion. Okay, now let me explain these terms so that we can all get on the same page. When I say regeneration, here is what I mean. Regeneration is the secret act of God where he takes you from spiritual death to spiritual life. Okay, now, conversion is our willing response. Is there a willing response from humans? Yes. Yes, there is. Okay, so conversion is our willing response to Christ where we repent of sin and trust in him for salvation. So how? How is the Apostle Paul saved? How is he saved? Step one, God shows up and brings him from spiritual death to spiritual life. He takes him from a place of being spiritually blind. Okay, we're gonna see the scales fall off in a minute. He takes him from a place of being spiritually blind to a place where he can spiritually see. That, that, that's what happens here in this text. And then he is converted through his willing response to Christ. Christ shows up in the bright light and says, here I am. And Paul says, I've got it all wrong. <laughs> I, I've totally missed it. And now I see who you are. And he makes that willing response to follow him. Here's what it says in John 1, 12 through 13. Listen to this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God, who were born not of blood, listen to this, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of who? Man, but of God. Man cannot choose to be saved. Why? Because sin has so distorted his will that he cannot, he is unable to. So what God does is he shows up, he regenerates someone, takes them from spiritual death to spiritual life, and without fail, they unfailingly choose to follow him. That's what the Bible teaches, okay? Listen to this. Now, after his conversion, he goes on to be a great church planter, preacher, pastor. Here is what the apostle Paul himself, after this experience, has to say about how he was saved. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of whose will? His will. Look at verse 15 in this very text, okay? Just look in your Bibles at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, we're not there yet, we're gonna get there. But the Lord said to him, go for he is a, what? Chosen instrument. Brothers and sisters, this is an amazing and glorious truth that without God's intervention, we would be damned. We would be away from him and God's wrath would be coming down on us and we will be separated from him forever. But instead, this God who stands in the light shows up and says, I love you. I choose you in your mind and I welcome you into my family. And if he is the one who does the saving, friends, he's the one who does the keeping. 
So he saves us, he keeps us, he invites us into his family, and he says, I love you, you're my children. That's the God that's in that light. This is the glimpse of of the man, the God man who I want you to see this morning. To be drawn to that, to say, God, you're so amazing that I would have never chosen you, but you choose me. I would have never loved you, but you love me. I would have never been able to save myself, but you saved me. Jonah 2.9 says, salvation is of the Lord. That's great news. That's great news. Verse 9. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Um, So we see Paul is blinded here. um, And uh, what happens is he essentially fasts. He he goes on this fast after he, he has seen the God of the universe, and that that God is Jesus, he, he goes into um, th- this fast. Uh, we have to understand that he realizes in that light and in that moment that his entire life had been a lie. So if you're taking notes, number three, Paul is confronted in the darkness with the true God, not the one that he had created. In the darkness, Over the course of three days, he is confronted with the God of the Bible, the real God of the Bible. You see, again, the Old Testament was pointing to Christ, pointing to Christ, pointing to Christ, but he refused to see that. He refused to see a suffering Messiah. And in his theological framework, there was no way that God would become a man. No way. In Paul's theological framework, there is no way that he would be crucified because Deuteronomy says that cursed is the man who is hung on a tree so the Messiah would never be crucified. Even though the Old Testament is pointing to a humble servant coming to save sinners, his God was a strong and severe God who would show up and only save good, devout Jews. There was no room in Paul's mind. There was no room in his theological framework for a suffering servant who would die on a tree. No way. So what we're seeing here is not the God of the Bible, but a God of Paul's creation, a God that he had made up in his mind. But listen to this. But in the darkness, here is what Paul discovered. Jesus was cursed and hung on a tree, but what Paul saw in that light was a resurrected Christ. Now, follow me here. If you're cursed, then you're not supposed to be resurrected to life, but Jesus was resurrected to life, and so in Paul's mind, he made this connection. He couldn't have been cursed and hung on a tree for his sins. Because if he was cursed and hung on a tree for his sins, then he wouldn't have been resurrected to life. He must have been cursed and hung on a tree for someone else's sins. And then all of a sudden, the Old Testament just came alive to him. And he saw all of the sacrifices, all these animals that we've been killing as a substitution for our sins. And all these sacrifices that we've made to atone for our sins. These animals have been dying in our place. And that's exactly what Christ has done. And the good news came home to him, and he began to see Jesus all throughout the scriptures. He began to see Jesus as the greater Adam, and Jesus as the greater Noah, and Jesus as the greater Abraham. And he began to know that Jesus Christ is the song of the scriptures. The problem today is that our world falls into that same trap. 
It's not that our world today creates a severe God. Um, Our world today creates a God of love um, who doesn't have any wrath. Our world today suffers from this same problem of believing in a God of their own creation. You see, I don't believe God would ever do blank. You see, I don't believe God would ever say that it's wrong to blank without ever going to God's word and looking at what God has said. Here's what I want to ask you this morning. Can God tell you something that you don't like? Can God's word contradict you? Is God's word allowed to tell you that you're wrong? Is God's word allowed to tell you no? You see, for many of us and for many people um, in this world, God's word is not allowed to do that. God's word cannot contradict us. God's word accepts all people without exception. But friends, let me tell you, there is a great exception. There is one exception that we believe on Jesus Christ. So, this is what the Apostle Paul discovered in those few days of darkness. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer, you are not a follower of Christ, I would beg you, I would beg you to wake up and open your eyes I fear for you, I fear the day when you will wake up and realize that your whole life has been a lie because you have been believing in a God of your own construction. So, let's look at verses 10 through 17. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus uh, named Ananias. Now, this isn't the Ananias we saw back in chapter five. Uh, That guy died, so this can't be him. Um, it's another guy with the same name. In addition, uh, there's a guy down here named Judas. That's not the same guy either. He died too. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, uh, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. Uh, That street actually still exists today. uh, At the house of Judas, and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has been seen in a vision Uh, a man named Ananias coming to lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show you how much he, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, And the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, So here's what I want you to see if you're taking down notes. Number four, Paul is adopted into a family and chosen for a mission. He's adopted into a family Not only is he adopted into a family, but he is chosen um, for a mission. Uh, This is uh, incredibly interesting. Uh, Ananias, obviously, is is a little bit hesitant. (laughs) Wouldn't you be? 
I want you to go and I want you to lay hands on this guy named Saul. And Ananias is thinking, when you say lay hands on him, you mean lay hands on him? Because I'll go lay hands on the guy if that's... You can also imagine that he might be a little fearful. I mean, this guy has the authority to arrest him. And so maybe he's saying, I don't want to go lay hands on the guy. I want to go hide because this guy's, I mean, he's pretty rough. But, of course, God in his very gracious way says, Ananias, I got this covered. Go, go and do what I tell you to do. Okay? So he does go. And it's amazing, amazing. I want you to see the, the significance of what Ananias says and, and how he leads off with this. He begins with this, brother. Brother Saul. You can imagine that Ananias possibly knew people that Saul had killed he knew the reputation of this man. He knew what he had done to women. He knew what he had possibly done to children and brothers in the faith. And Ananias, in a great display of the grace of God, walks into this room where the apostle Paul is set in misery and darkness and lays his hands on him and calls him brother. Not you dirty, rotten scoundrel. I mean, I... I mean, you were this close to the fires of hell. He lays hands on him and calls him brother. At that moment, you, you can imagine the stirring and the, and the feeling in the heart of, of the apostle Paul as, as he knew that God had forgiven him, but would God's people ever forgive him for what he had done? Brothers and sisters, I, I beg us to take this cue from Ananias that when people come in these doors who have assorted and difficult pasts, that we never think we're better than them. That we never look down on someone who was a, a drug addict, a prostitute, a sex offender, a porn addict, and we never look at them and say, huh. We never have this sense of, my sins are different, therefore I'm better. But we have a sense of laying hands on people who are Christians, and calling them brother and welcoming them into the family. So not only um, does he get welcomed into a family, but he is also called to a mission, uh, a pretty incredible mission. He is to carry my name before the Gentiles, which he does, and kings, which he does, and the children of Israel, which he does because his good works were predestined for him to do so here is what he is commissioned to. He is called to a life of mission, and, and we are called to that exact same mission, to carry the name of Christ with great honor. That, that this is an honor to do this. This isn't a, a burden or a curse, but it is a great honor to be on mission for Christ and to carry his name before people. Now, look what this great honor and privilege cost him. Did you see that in the text? Jesus said, I will show him what? How much he will suffer. You see, the truth of the matter is, as a church, week after week, we've been calling you to mission. We describe mission as this way, essentially being a missionary here in Fayetteville. That, that, that's what we're, I mean, it's telling people about Christ, laying your life on the line for him. This is what we've called you to week after week. And we see here in this text that mission is costly, Mission is costly. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. I want you to hear the cost of his mission. 
2 Corinthians eleven twenty five through 27. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and in cold and exposure. Why does God make him suffer? Why does mission cost the apostle Paul so much? Was, was God just getting back at him? I mean, he had persecuted the church. He, he had drugged these people off and, and killed some. I mean, God's saying, all right, I'm gonna welcome you in the family, and not only am I gonna welcome you in, I'm gonna give you a job to do, but listen here, it's, it, you're gonna have to suffer. Look at all the stuff you've done. Absolutely not. The apostle Paul's sins were crucified on the cross. Why does he make them suffer so much? Why does God allow us to suffer in the midst of mission? It's because all of the persecution he had carried out against the church, that was not the reason. It was to show a dying world the worth of Christ. Again, my, my hope here is, is for us just to, just to get a glimpse of, of the Jesus in this bright, shining light. The suffering the apostle Paul went through, the suffering not even compared to this, but the small amount of suffering that you and I go through as we live our lives on mission is to show a lost and dying world the worth of Christ. I want you to see the worth of that God-man in the bright, shining light that he is worthy to sacrifice for, that he is worthy to lay down your money for, that he is worthy to lay down your time for, that he is worthy to lay it all on the line because he is Christ. and He's worthy of it. He's, he's worth so much more than we often attribute it to. If somebody looked at your life, does your life look like Christ is worthy? Does your life look like Christ is worth something? Or does your life look like your money is more worthy, your, your money carries more worth than Christ? Your position at your job carries more worth than Christ. What people think about you carries more worth than Christ. Or is Christ worth more than any of those things? That's why God allows us to suffer along the way. That's why God allows suffering in the mission is to show a lost and dying world how valuable he is because who cares if we're shipwrecked? Who cares if we're adrift at sea? Who cares if we lose our house? Who cares if we lose the job? We have Christ. We have Christ. Verses 18 and 19, and then I'm out of your hair. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, taking food. He was strengthened. Number five, if you're taking notes, there is no one outside the reach of God's mighty saving hand. There's no one outside the reach of God's mighty saving hand. You know what I've been praying this week? My wife and I have been talking and we've been praying that Jesus would save the leaders of the Islamic State. We've been praying that Jesus would save Abu al-Baghdadi because there is no one no one outside the reach of God's mighty saving hand. 
not your friends, not your relatives. So don't give up on them. Don't you give up on them. You keep praying for them. You keep begging God to show up and do something. You see, if you were to look at the Apostle Paul, you would say, there's no way. I'm, I'm going to stop praying for this guy because there's, there's no movement here. I've been praying for Paul, but, I mean, he's just still killing people. He's still attacking the church. I've been praying and praying and praying, and nothing's happening. But the text says, suddenly the light shone around him. Just like that. Suddenly, out of nowhere, God showed up and did something. So don't you give up on your friend. Don't you give up on your family member. You keep praying for them. You keep praying for them because God is the God who has a mighty and powerful hand to save. That's the God in the light. That's the God I want you to see this morning. That's the God I want you to get a glimpse of and to see that God, that mighty God who shows up to save us and choose us when we would never choose him. That mighty God who shows up in our darkest place and shows us the light. I want you to see that God. I want you to see the mighty saving hand of God that has snatched you out of the mouth of hell. I want you to see the mighty saving God who is mighty to save anyone. That's how mighty he is. That's how powerful he is. And then I want the Holy Spirit to do a work. Oh, Holy Spirit, do that work now of drawing your heart into worship, that God in the bright, shining light. And then I want us to leave out of here totally devoted to this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ, who is mighty to save, not only save us, but adopt us into a family and send us out on the great mission of carrying his name. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, that we would get a glimpse this morning of that great God standing in the shining light, Jesus Christ, the Savior, the initiator of salvation, the one who saves, the one who's mighty to save. Father, help us to see that we've been adopted into a family Help us to see that you stand with your people as the head of the church, as the head of the family. There is mighty Jesus standing and us standing alongside of him, inviting us into his family, inviting us into a mission, inviting us into a life purpose, a purpose of seeing those who are outside of the family brought into the family. And so I pray for people this morning, Christians this morning, who have weary souls Say, my soul is weary and I'm tired. I just don't know if I can keep praying for my dad. I don't know if I can keep praying for my coworker. It's just nothing's happening. I want them to see that you're mighty to save, God. Father, we pray for the leaders of the Islamic State. Father, that you would save them. How glorious would it be for them to not send out videos of terror and torture, but to send out videos that say, we've met Jesus. He's shown himself to us in a bright light. And we renounce this false religion. We renounce this terror and we accept Jesus. How, how cool would that be? And so we ask for that. We pray for that now. God, I know that you're mighty and powerful enough to do it. You've done it before and you can do it again. So God, we trust you. We love you. God, let our hearts now be drawn to worship. and Let our lives be devoted to you. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.